Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julia Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have a wonderful guest coming in from New Hampshire today. His name is John Thomasy. Before I introduce my guest, I want to introduce my book, which is called A Gift from Adversity. Same title as my podcast, A Gift from Adversity, and it's available on Amazon. The subtitle of this book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. After I published my book, I got a lot of messages from people that I have known or that I have never met, telling their adversity, sharing their stories, sexual abuse, domestic violence, etc. This year, I decided to do the podcast to create a platform where people can talk safely about the adversity, but not only that, tools that they use to overcome, and then a gift came from it. And this is our episode 72, and I, we've had guests from all over the world, and I'm so grateful that people are willing to share their adversity, their stories, and trying to normalize difficult conversations so we can all overcome these challenges in our lives together. So let's introduce our guest tonight. Hi, John. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for tuning in today and then coming to A Gift from Adversity. Absolutely. Looking, I was looking forward to it. Absolutely. So, John, before we jump into our main question, would you please introduce our guest, who you are, and then what you do, and if you have any website or social media handle that people can follow you? Okay. Uh, my name is John Tomasi. Uh, I've been a police officer for 48 years. Uh, 24 of those have been uh, full-time, and uh, I'm still a part-time police officer. Uh, it's full-time during the summer here at Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. It's a resort town and uh, part-time for the rest of the year. Uh, I also taught college for about 40 years. Uh, again, uh, it was part-time when I was a full-time officer. And then once I retired from the police department, I taught up at uh, Bentley College uh, outside of Boston and then the University of New Hampshire. Uh, recently retired for that, but again, still working as a police officer. Uh, my we my website is johntomasi.com. It's a combination uh, economics uh, website, and uh, I've written three books that are on Amazon like you, and uh, you could read their uh, prologues and first chapter on that website, johntomasi.com. And can you tell our audience what are the books that you published a little bit? Sure. Um, the first book was a book of fiction. Um, I was assigned to the New Hampshire Drug Task Force and the Drug Enforcement Agency for uh, four years working undercover drugs. Uh, the first book is named Danger Zone. It's loosely based on my time in the uh, Drug Task Force. Uh, the second and third books are true crime books. They're nonfiction. Uh, the second book is called Murder at the Front Door. It is the true story of the murder of Richard Cushing uh, by an off-duty Hampton police officer who had a 13-year grudge against him. And he carried this grudge for 13 years. Uh, the third book was a um, 
called Murder Outside the Back Door. And these are available on Amazon. And it is the true story of the murder of a Salem, New Hampshire school teacher by her husband in Lawrence Mass. And that was labeled a Charles Stewart type murder because he blamed the murder on the violence in the city at Lawrence Mass when he himself did it. Uh, it was a particularly gruesome murder. So how are the book going and how is it received so far? Uh, the book sales are doing very well. Uh, I'm very happy with it. I'm getting a lot of positive feedback <clears throat> from the books. And like I said, I've taught school for quite a while. So this is kind of the two things I do best is research and uh, then writing. And I've enjoyed doing it. And what were you teaching at college? I was teaching uh, economics and finance, which a lot of people look at me funny and said, you're a police officer and you're teaching economics and finance. Well, I started off in the business world. I had a master's in business administration, uh, got tired of the business world and became a cop, enjoyed being a cop. And I started teaching part time. And then um, right before I retired, I was thinking of retirement and I went back to my alma mater, University of New Hampshire, and got another master's degree, this one in economics. That's very impressive that while you were doing a police job that you were still able to teach completely different subject. And I was thinking that you were teaching criminal justice. Everyone does that, but uh, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And um, Will Rogers said it best. Uh, if you like what you're doing, if you like your job, then you'll never work a day in your life. Wonderful. So let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So what would you say um, what your adversity is? Uh, what, what was your adversity? The, um, the very tough part of being a police officer was seeing the dark side of life. You know, I've been to a lot of murder scenes. Um, I was involved in the cases uh, of both books that I wrote, um, and it's you know, particularly gruesome scenes. One individual was shot with a double-barreled shotgun. Uh, the other book, Murder Outside the Back Door, uh, two girls were killed by multiple stab wounds by three boys who wanted to experience how it was to kill someone. And like I said, uh, it was a particularly um, brutal uh, scene that you just have to go and deal with it. And prior to our interview, once uh, when you started to become a police officer, one of the first call was about baby. Yeah, one, I, um, I had just had my first child and I had to go to a call and she was very healthy. Everything was going great. And I had to go to a call where the parents were just totally broken up. They had their child died after about six months and they knew right from the beginning that this child only had uh, six months to live and this child was very close to my daughter's age so that was difficult to deal with that was probably if i had to pick my most difficult call as a police officer i would pick that one 
So describe to our audience um, who are absolutely not like not familiar with law enforcement, um, the demand of your mental health and being a police officer, seeing these brutal murders in the scenes, like how would you describe that? Like we have no idea, but we are the same human being and you are the front line seeing this ugliest side of a human being. Police work has really evolved over the past 40 years when I've been a police officer. Uh, We've gone from not showing the emotions and just deal with it. Um, The way I dealt with it back in the 80s, 90s, and, you know, right after 2000, when you you, you talk to other cops about it, uh, we have something in police work called quiet practice. And uh, what quiet practice is, is cops getting together after the end of, uh, say, an early night shift, four to midnight shift, and having a few beers. And you just talk with your friends about it, uh, and and that kind of alleviates um, the pressure that you're under. Um, We've seen quite a metamorphosis in police work. What has happened, particularly in the past 10 years, is there's been a lot of employee assistance programs, which you saw very frequently in the private sector, but you never saw in police work, but we have that now. Um, In the police departments that I've worked, both Salem, New Hampshire, and Hampton, New Hampshire, we have what's known as um, wellness squads. And it's police officers who will talk with other police officers who are going through a traumatic a traumatic issue because of a call they've gone on. Uh, usually it involves a lot of <clears throat> police shootings or just violent deaths. You know, uh, both the subject contents of the books were violent deaths. Um, and just, you know, even going to an accident that is a violent death uh, is difficult. I mean, some police officers have retired because of that. Um, others have killed themselves. There was a police uh, captain in Derry, New Hampshire, who about a couple of years ago killed himself. Uh, there was a retired lieutenant from Salem who, who did the same thing just because the pressures of the job followed him after he retired. Um, but, but again, uh, these assistance programs and just talking out your problems with other people who understand uh, seem to really help. And you didn't have that 15, 20 years ago, whereas pretty much all police departments have that now. It's very heartbreaking to know that mental health absolutely talk, talk about mental health is getting more normalized, especially after the global pandemic and coming out of everybody getting isolated for for what, like two years and then Mm -hmm any ages, but it's sad that in my case, for instance, in Japan, child sex abuse, domestic violence, those are hash hash. Nobody talked about it. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what PTSD was. This Mm -hmm. is in Japan in eighties. School never had a counselor. Nobody had an understanding of the magnitude of emotional injury and then lifelong impact. So when you are dealing with this in 
80s, 90s, like you said, like you go maybe get a beer and then the cash trash kind of talk through. How would you describe it compared to now that you have these resources and then places that you can have help? And when you didn't have those help, how was it kind of affecting your normal life? Um, I was able to deal with it pretty well because I was a um, I was a bachelor for quite a long time. Um, but looking at other police officers, it really affected its marriage. Their uh, their marriages. I mean, police officers have a really high divorce rate. It's somewhere around 75 to 80 percent. Whereas if I'm not mistaken, the national average is somewhere around 53 percent. So what was happening back in the 80s and 90s, uh, 70s, as police officers would bring the job home, uh, you had to have a very special kind of spouse uh, who would deal with that. And one of the things I've found over the years that a police marriage tended to work better if they got married after, if they got married uh, with the wife knowing what she was getting into. In other words, if the wife dated the police officer and then they got married afterwards, as opposed to what was very difficult for a lot of spouses was they were living what I call a normal life, the husband was working or the wife was working nine to five. And then all of a sudden they're working midnight shifts. They're working early night shifts. That was very difficult to deal with for a lot of people. And then when you talk about the PTSD and traumatic event, we are all human beings, as I said, and then you and I are the same, even though our occupation is different. And then obviously the police officers have to see this crazy human side and then dead bodies and then all this um craziness of human being that you just have to deal with it and then it sounds like back then you just were told to deal with it exactly deal with it um uh in the fur in my second book murder at the front door the police officer would come home and try and talk to his wife and his wife would just say, don't tell anyone at work this because you'll get fired. So he didn't have that outlet. So pressure, stress is cumulative and it built up over the years and over the years. And finally he, this one person he murdered, he blamed him for a lot of factors that occurred in his life. Um, and it, it just came to a head. And like you said, the divorce rate between the officers really high in amongst the officers, and then also the suicidal rate that could have been maybe addressed if yes. there was understanding of mental health and effect to your brain of seeing these traumatic things. Like say veterans, um, they do. I feel like the war, going to the war, like you know, you expected to see these kind of brutal martyrs and dead bodies and like significant injuries. But for the police officers, I, you know, I'm really sorry and then shocked to see that the system of the emotional support and then, you know, kind of a traumatic cleanse part of it was not implemented that you had to go through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what 
a lot of police officers uh, know talk about right now is they get very frustrated at what some of them will refer to as the liberal media. And they, it seems sometimes that the media is going out of their way uh, to really demonize police officers. You know, mistakes are always made. We're human like everyone else. George Floyd, obviously. Um, but since the George Floyd incident, uh, the press has just done a wonderful job of demonizing officers uh, to the point where no one wants to become a police officer these days. Um, state police in New Hampshire are 70 troopers shot. Okay, they, they, they can't find people. Uh, Hampton, New Hampshire, we're looking for three officers. Salem, New Hampshire, we're looking for eight officers. Every police department I know of is looking for officers, and it's very difficult to hire officers these days. I have a friend whose son, a uh, couple uh, last year, graduated from uh, Westfield State with a criminology degree. He always wanted to be a police officer. He got a couple of uh, offers for interviews to go through the process, and he decided by his senior year he didn't want to be a police officer anymore. Um, uh, again, for the most part, I'd say that 98% of police officers do a wonderful job. In uh, the 2% that screw up, it gets a lot of press. And then I I remember like covering, I'm a journalist, by the way, and then remember, um, you know, covering the stories and then going to the protests. And how did these kind of incidents influence your normal life as a police officer outside of police officer job like how did it affect you um what i am seeing especially with the young officers one of the things i like to do is i i, I like to walk around with the younger officers and involve myself in training when i was in salem uh working full-time i was a sergeant for 20 plus years uh i enjoyed that um, and now, like I said, in Hampton, New Hampshire, I'm a part-time officer. Um, but one of the things, we, we do a lot of training. And one of the things, uh, what we refer to as shoot, don't shoot scenarios. Uh, should you shoot this person? Should you not shoot them? And one of the things I'm finding that is very significant is a lot of police officers aren't shooting when they actually should be. Um, and in the, a lot of these scenarios, a lot of them are getting killed. Um, and I think it's in part due to the press where there is a lot of negative press on police officers. It is, um, very unfortunate, like in a way that, Obviously, not every police officers have those intentions against black people or against minority. And then mm -hmm. I am minority, and I've been treated by the police officers wonderfully and life changing and life saving officers. And then they are, you know, forefront, like really saving people's lives. And then again, like press and this reaction to the traumatic incident that's very tough when you get so much 
like majority systematic bias against your job. Yeah, one of the things you, you you hit the nail on the head there is you will see on the news, no nightly national news, NBC, CBS, ABC, that all the bad things police officers do, and they have this luxury they the news of picking and choosing. You never see a lot of, or very rarely do you see a lot of good things that cops do, and, and that's frustrating. And that's probably one of the reasons a lot of people don't want to be cops these days. Just the perception they have that, okay, we're hated. So, John, um, before our live interview, you kind of mentioned about reverse discrimination. Would you mind to share our audience about it? It's happened, you know, I'm from New Hampshire. And New Hampshire has a very small, it's a state with a population that has a very small minority. So we don't see incidents of discrimination very often. I could certainly tell you, uh, I've never seen any as a police officer by other police officers. Um, what happened with me is when I got out of college, once the first job I applied to was at Raytheon and uh, North Andover, uh, right outside of Boston. And my job got held up for about two to three weeks because of they had to write a number of um, letters to the EEOC stating why they're accepting me and not a person of color. Uh, I eventually got hired. The second incident was in 1977. I always wanted to be a Boston cop back then. So I took the civil service test in Massachusetts and I uh, finished in the top 1%. And I never got called for an interview. Uh, and that year in Boston, that was the year they hired 50 minority police officers. All of them were minorities. So that was a little frustrating, but you know, you just put on your big boy pants and uh, I ended up working, uh, getting a job in Salem about a year later. <clears throat> and um, that was a year before the Baki decision, which was Baki versus University uh, of California Board of Regents. He was not accepted uh, because a minority was picked in front of him. That went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme, that's when the Supreme Court ruled that um, you could, uh, a organization could establish goals, but not quotas. So that was a landmark reverse discrimination case. And sorry, what year was that? That was 77 or 78, B-A-K-K-E -K -K -E, uh, versus uh, University of California Board of Regents. Wow. So just to uh, let you know and our audience know, I am from Japan, and I came to America uh, as an exchange student, and I don't know why, but my guidance counselor said it might be easy for you to take this class, and that was current event class, and it was significantly difficult. And then my job, I mean, the homework was to read Time Magazine column, and then I had no idea, and I remember I think they were talking about affirmative action and reverse. 
just like <coughs> um, you mentioned, and I have no idea, but I remember this um, um, picture that was portrait for the article that a lot of um, people are climbing the ladders and then a couple races are picked up or not. And then I had no idea why there was affirmative action. And then I had no idea why there was re reverse discrimination. And because in Japan, we only have Japanese people. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have black, white, you know, Latino. <clears throat> and to be honest with you, when you fill out Corey or job application, um, there's always race check. I've never seen that growing up in Japan because we only wow. have one. <laughs> yeah, so it's very interesting to me to have this dynamic of, you know, discrimination against the race and then affirmative action. And what do you uh, take on that? As, I, I, well, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. You just made me think of something. A couple of years ago, my daughter for a gift gave me um, – the 23andMe genetic research you could do. So, you know, it tells you, you know, you're so, I'm, you know, 87% Italian, 10%, um, 11% European, Mediterranean, European, but I was also 2% African. <laughs> so, so I wondered if over the years, my 2% African, if I could have claimed minority status. <laughs> wow. So being um, Caucasian and then have this reverse discrimination uh, that you experienced, how did you feel back then? It was it was frustrating, but you know I just deal with it. And like I said, you put on your big boy pants and you move on. You you, you can't dwell on it. And uh, um, you know I I see it now every now and then. Um, and again, it's frustrating, but you deal with it and you move on. I mean, I've always felt in the long run, the cream always rises to the top. I like that phrase. Yeah, you got to have a positive attitude in life. Very much so. Absolutely. So we're going to save those tools a little bit later. But I want to actually go back to a police job and then seeing this um like traumatic um, situation where it could maybe cause you PTSD, um, some of the triggers that you may have caught, like it, it may have caused. Can you recall some of the scenes that you saw that sometimes triggers a nightmare or kind of comes up here and there? Um, I have pretty good ego defense mechanisms. And, you know, I've got some really close friends that if I have a problem, I talk with them um, amongst them being my wife, being my best friend. Um, so I'm not too bad, but I, I've seen, you know, uh, just a lot of other officers. For instance, um, we had one officer uh, who was involved in a shooting. It was, you know, he and two other guys shot someone who was aiming a shotgun at another police officer and it was a very good shoot but he just went to pieces he just went to pieces and uh uh you know we're talking about someone who's about 30 years old and he ended up retiring on a medical and this was about 15 20 years ago and he's still on medication and he still has a lot of nightmares 
Um, there, uh, there was another officer who was accidentally shot by an officer behind him. What happened was they were approaching the car on a felony stop. The guy was wanted for um, armed robbery. And the, uh, I mean, the officer who did the shooting by accident had his finger on the trigger. He tripped and shot the other officer in the shoulder. Fortunately, it wasn't, you know, he recovered uh, 95%, 90, 95%, but they both ended up retiring on a medical disability. Uh, and, and again, there are just some really bad accidents where you see someone's scalp peeled back and see parts of their skull. Uh, I've seen arms uh, ripped off. And again, those are the nights you have to go home or you, you have a what's known as a quiet practice with a few buddies and have a few drinks and just talk it out. Um, and some people deal with it better than others. I fortunately was able to deal with it pretty well. Yeah. And it's just so heartbreaking that you become a police officer um, in a very good intention. And then obviously it's a high, high risk job and not expecting these traumatic event that can break you to pieces and then some commit suicide and you know it's just very very heartbreaking to see especially good officers with a good intention had to go through that yes yeah and you know and i i you know when i'm out with the new kids walking the beat during the summer um here in hampton uh I, I try and let them know what they're going to be in for. And, and it's usually, sometimes it's a very rude awakening. Well, thank you so much, John. I have a lot of respect for police officers, firefighters, the first responders that are absolutely risking their lives every day out there and really doing their job that not so many people want to do and thank you for your service for you. years and thank you for keeping our society safe thank you absolutely so let's move on to our second question which are the tools you kind of mentioned a little bit about you know quiet practice and then maybe looking beers or sharing with your friends but can you please um break it down more but before we um, um, ask your answers. I just want to mention, John, that this is one of my favorite part of the podcast because when I started to share, I've had no expectation. I just wanted to start a podcast to talk about not not only about the diversities, but the tools that people can overcome quicker. Because in my case, for instance, child sex abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, bullying. Like when you have a fever, you go to CVS and get Tylenol or ibuprofen to reduce the fever. But when you do have the PTSD and then when you especially don't even know that you have PTSD and then what it does to your brain and to your emotional reaction to it. Like I struggled so, so much. I would say 30 years of my life not knowing what was going on and then what's wrong with me and then blamed me and shamed myself 
and had so much low self-esteem until really recently that I started to figure out why there was no resources and lack of toolboxes that could have maybe helped me um, achieve more in my life. So I just wanted to share that with you. And then being said so, this part of the podcast could potentially save somebody, potentially maybe bypass some of the struggles that we've experienced in 80s or 90s that people can use moving forward. So what would you say the best tools, especially as a, being a police officer, um, seeing these traumatic things that, you know, you can stay sane and then not bring the job home and move forward? The, the best tools that we have now is, again, the wellness squad and then possibly referrals to psychologists. Whereas in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you didn't have that. If you came out and said, hey, listen, this was really bothering me or, uh, you know, I don't know if I could deal with this. You were probably envisioned as being somewhat weak, whereas that is not the case now. I mean, it is literally 180 degrees. If you go, if a police officer goes to a tough call, traumatic situation, um, they are automatically people automatically go and talk to him or her. And we're getting a lot more female police officers, which is wonderful. Um, But that was never the case. I think that is probably um, the best tool we have is one admitting that, yeah, this is tough and cops have to deal with it. And one of the ways we deal with it is by talking to other people and saying other people realizing that, yeah, you're not weak by talking to us, you're actually strong by doing this and not holding it in and not taking it home with you. Uh, This is by far the best thing to do. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And I'm very happy that Wellness Squad is available for the police officers now. And they're even like recognizing even the beforehand something happens that they can prevent these mental health issues that can like lifelong last and they have significant impact. Um, so I'm very glad to hear that. But I, I mean, the, the other thing that's interesting is when I became a police officer, I had to go to the police academy and that was only six weeks. Uh, the police academy now is 16 weeks and it's going to 18 weeks and they deal with that. How do you deal with the stress? Whereas before, no, you never saw that at a police academy, but you know you're seeing a lot of things at the academy that you would not see in the past, like implicit bias, uh, de-escalation tactics, and uh, it, it's it's taken a step in a nice direction. That is incredible to hear. Why do you think the shift happened? Um, I think it was the intelligent thing to do, uh, and more and more people were realizing, okay, we have to do this. You know, police officers are human. They're not superhuman. And they deal with a lot of things that other people just would, would never see in life. Like, you know, I've been to an accident where I've seen someone's arm rip off. I've been to a decapitation accident. And then um, you, we see domestics all the time. And uh, you got to deal with that. 
So do you have really, but you really had a career without the wellness squad, without all this extra training at the academy, but you kind of dealt with it. But then like, how do you really not bring that home? And then you mentioned that you were, you were bachelor for a while and then maybe that helped to not bring into the relationship. But then even not wife situation, wife and husband situation, you have friends and you have families. And then like, how do you not bring that into, like when you clock out, like were you able to completely separate yourself and enjoy your life and then just kind of leave it behind the door? I was one of those people that I'm able to do that. A lot of other people weren't. Uh, like I said, probably the only call that I really took home with me uh, was when that baby died. Uh, but out, outside of that, I deal with it pretty well. Would you say having your financial and economical background, like the knowledge that you have helped you? Very much so, especially economics, because e- economics to me is very logical. No, usually if this, if A, then B, and quite possibly C. So, um, I mean, one of the things I've never had a problem with is finances. So that helps a lot too. Um, You know, again, I was a bachelor for a long time. And during that bachelorhood, uh, besides being a police officer, I was teaching part-time. And I had a number of businesses. One of the businesses being a, um, I had a flight school and a charter business. So I did fairly well with that, and uh, everything worked out well for me. Well, that's incredible. So maybe not just being a police officer, but having a completely different job. Yeah, very much so. That that was almost like an outlet sometimes. Like, all right, I need a break from police work, okay? Uh, And I'm going to do this. And uh, like, like, I'll give you an example. there's been some particularly rough summers at Hampton Beach, particularly the summer of 2020. And right after the summer was over, I just took a one month break from police work. Now, I, I may work in occasional detail, but I wasn't working any shifts. I, you, you just, I just needed time to simmer down and decompress. I don't think people understand the decompression part. Yeah. It's important. I mean, one of the things you have to learn to deal with very much as a police officer is dealing with stress. Excuse excuse me. And one of the ways I dealt with stress over the years and still do is uh, I work out a lot. I run a lot. And that that's a really good for me, stress reliever. But people have to find a way that they deal with stress and what relieves that stress. And then I appreciate you saying that because... Everybody has different tools to overcome challenges and stress. And more people talk about tools and then share their toolboxes. I believe that it can triage, cleanse all these difficulties in our lives. And people do not talk enough about the tools. Yeah, for me, the two big tools were, you know, Again, having a couple of beers with friends, talking about it, and then just working out a lot. One of the things we do when we go to hire a police officer, we have a written test and we have an oral test, uh, what we call an oral board. And three police officers ask the candidate a number of questions. 
And one of the questions I like to ask is, how do you deal with stress? How do you deal with it? And like I said, uh, no, people deal with it differently. But for me, working out really has really helped. Yes, I remember like I had a surgery in July, but before that I was doing karate a lot. And I went all the way to Greenbelt and I did a Spartan race. I did a 5K. And when I was growing up, when I was especially physically, sexually getting abused by my father, always playing piano or doing physical exercise kind of escaped that part of it. And still nowadays, like I have a high pressure job as an actress, single mom and a journalist, um, very high pressure, high expectation of yourself that sometimes going to this exercise mode in your head you can just forget about everything and just focus on what you have to get through to get stronger or just you know run um i think that's very important and then i think it um i think produces some chemicals in your brain that can make you like calmer or happier I agree, and, and it prepares you for police work. I remember reading um, one author, O.W. Wilson, said that police work is seven hours and 59 minutes of boredom followed by one minute of sheer terror. <laughs> so you know, when that happens at the end of the shift, especially say you're working a four to midnight shift, now I usually go home, maybe have, maybe have a beer if it's a quiet night, and then go right to bed. But now you're really worked up. You know, something and something always when you're working early nights, four to midnight or, you know, five to one, something always happens at the end of the night. And, you know, you just got to deal with that. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing this very precious story. I've never really talked to a police officer about the inside job and the perspective in you are my first guest um, who is a police officer and i'm very honored to learn more about the job itself yes absolutely and i admire you for not just pushing aside but finding the strengths and the resilience and then still be able to help other people that's very significant thank you well, let's move on to the last question that I have, which is a gift that came from the adversity. So, Joe, how would you describe a gift that came from these challenges and adversity? If I had, if someone asked me, what do you do best in life? I think I would like to say being a dad. I mean, I had kids at the right time in my life, uh, in, in my 40s, because I, I had patients in my 40s that I didn't have in my 20s and 30s. Um, and uh, I just got to spend a lot of time with my kids. And, uh, you know, I, I went through a divorce from their mom, but it was a very amicable divorce. Um, and what was, and, you know, I had the differences with their mom. Uh, but the one thing that I always said she was very good at was being a mom and 
I think she reciprocated with saying that me being a dad. So uh, all the kids turned out really well. Uh, and pro probably just dealing with people. Um, you know, it's like my wife right now says, uh, you're yelling. I go, no, I'm not yelling. That's being Italian, okay? <laughs> Italians, we're, we're loud, we're passionate. That's just being Italian. I'm not yelling. Uh, but but uh, probably the best gift, uh, being a dad, dealing with people. Great. Before you go, I want you to have this situation where maybe young police officer is listening to our podcast or will be listening to a podcast um, of what you know already if they were going through a difficult time dealing with this process or situations and with your knowledge and experiences what would you say your biggest advice is don't keep it in talk to someone no just keep it simple talk to someone and I, I, I'm not a police officer by far, but I think in anybody's lives, talking to somebody that you can trust is probably one of the healthiest, biggest thing that you can do to yourself. And then I think people don't understand the mag, uh, magnitude of it because when you have very complex situation, especially where a lot of people are involved, in the situations were involved, you're trying to figure out what was wrong, what went wrong, and then what could have, you know, be prevented. And then you just sometimes can't do that alone. And then by talking, like you said, um, you can objectify, you can analyze, and you can listen to yourself as well as, you know, you get feedback. But then, what you said about don't keep it in, I think it's important because a lot of people were taught to be white male, like toughen up, man, you're a man, you yeah. shouldn't cry, you shouldn't whine, but we are all hu same human being, regardless of race or gender or age issues that I think um, we are all allowed and then deserve to be listened and heard and then not completely be perfect mm. yeah um like i said stress is cumulative and you got to get it out you got to alleviate it well john thank you so much again for your time tonight and i truly truly sincerely appreciate you sharing your story uh a gift from adversity podcast and then it's been such a pleasure getting to know you thank you i loved it well, thank you. Thank you for our audience as well. And I am very grateful to have this platform. And we have more guests coming in, coming month. And then we'll have more dialogue around the adversity tools and a gift. Thank you. And see you next time. Thank you. Bye, Jerry. It was a pleasure.